Hello, and welcome to another installment of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with Dr. Woody Holton to discuss the 10th anniversary of his Bancroft Prize-winning book, Abigail Adams. As a friendly reminder, there is still time to register for our April Ford Evening Book Talk featuring Carla McClafferty, author of the young adult book, Buried Lives, the Enslaved People of George Washington's Mount Vernon on April 11th. This special program will also feature a presentation from Mount Vernon's archaeology department highlighting recent discoveries from the slave cemetery. For more information about this event, please check out the link on the webpage for this episode at www.mountvernon.org podcast. And without further ado, we join Drs. Butterfield and Holton in the studio. Over the years, surely many biographies have been written about Abigail Adams. What led you to write this one? Well, I kind of didn't mean to write it. I had been doing a book on the financial origins of the U.S. Constitution and ended up thinking the real protagonists of that story were government bond speculators. And I was fascinated by them, but I could also tell that my readers, you know, their eyes were going to gloss over. As These I, are people who are buying up Revolutionary War era debt. Exactly. From the soldiers who have actually done the fighting and then have to sell their bonds for a fraction of the face value to these speculators. So I thought they were really interesting characters. They're important to the writing of the Constitution. I'm trying to find one of these guys that I could use to put a face on all the others. And the problem was I'd have letters from this guy, letters to, but not to him. And, you know, letters to this other guy or financial records. And there wasn't one guy that was just really fully documented that I could use as my stand-in for the whole group. Mm -hmm. And then I found my guy. And my guy was Abigail Adams, (laughs) who was amazingly astute about following that bond market. She started off with an uncle named Cotton Tufts up in Massachusetts, who was her advisor. But just a few years into it, she was advising him. Wow. Um, and, and, and she really made a killing uh, in the bond market, not buying directly from the soldiers himself, but these, these bonds were out there. And just to give you one example, there was one uh, Massachusetts state note that she bought for one-fourth of its face value. Um, and the interest was 6%. So that's a pretty good bond, mm-hmm. 6%. But the interest is calculated not on the what she had paid for it, but on the face value. Mm-hmm. So just do the math of if you're buying it at one-fourth of face value, say 100 bucks, that's 6%, but you only paid 25 So you're basically making 25% interest in uh, earnings on your investment every single year, and you're keeping the principal, which she did. And then once the Constitution was adopted, she made this huge windfall for her family. Wow. Um, It's interesting because John Adams was in Europe during most of the time that she was doing this and would communicate with her. um, And John Adams hated bond speculators and actually used anti-Semitic language to describe them. Mm. He called them Jews and Judaizing um, Christians, as you know, there's this long tradition in Europe as well as the United States of seeing uh, Jewish people as these financiers who are manipulating the government and all that. Yeah. And I'm sorry to say, as much as I admire John Adams, that was one of his weaknesses, was that he had an anti-Semitic attitude about them. Meanwhile, his wife was making him a rich man by making him a bond speculator as she took over the family business for him 
she was not much of a farmer. She was a terrible farmer, but, but uh, certainly wasn't any better than John was. But she was really great at bond speculation. She uh, she got into Vermont land before there was a Vermont. Mm. Um, she uh, used the the war. She made a lot of profit off the war. You could call her a war profiteer uh, in that um, the the, uh, the British were embargoing American trade, and so anything that did get through, you could name your own price. So she basically had him as an American diplomat in Paris send stuff to her in the diplomatic pouch. Um, and, wow. and I remember at one point John Adams says to Abigail, well, you know what, uh, one of our... Uh, shipments got confiscated by the British and we lost everything so maybe we should get out of this market and Abigail wrote back and the, the, the line was if one in three arrives I should be a gainer <laughs> uh, which I take it as the sort of 18th century you just don't get it do you Joe? yes the, <laughs> the, 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 the risk is high but for that exact reason the rewards are too yeah okay so you've, you've already introduced me to an Abigail Adams that's economically savvy. She's involved in ways that go beyond just the wife of a president. So let's take a big step back. Abigail Adams, obviously you've already mentioned John Adams. She's the wife of John Adams. She goes on to be the second first lady in the United States. Go way back. Who is Abigail Adams? Um, at, at, well, who is she at her birth? What's, what's, what's her upbringing like? Uh, what, what kind of childhood did she have? And how did she uh, sort of enter the, the world of John Adams? Tell, tell us about the early years. Well, she was a Parsons daughter, born in 1744, at home, of course, in Weymouth, Massachusetts, raised in part by slaves, an important thing to remember about her because we associate slavery with the southern colonies, but mm-hmm. there were slaves in all 13 of the colonies that rebelled. And um, one of her other biographies, there are a lot of a lot of great biographies over, and one of her other biographers, Lynn uh, Withy, describes her going around with her mom to the parishioners who are in trouble for various reasons and, um, and, and helping them out. And I think she did imbibe that. Um, she, heard she had a, a, paternal, a maternal grandfather who was the head of the Massachusetts legislature, and her father's a preacher, and her mom's a preacher's wife. And I think she definitely picked up that... Um, that duty to take care of other people without. Hmm. She wasn't fabulously wealthy, but as I say, the family had slaves. They they were doing okay. So start with that. Mm -hmm. But then um, there's this other interesting thing uh, about her, um, and that is how well-educated she was. And that's a little bit of an inherent contradiction because you go, wait a minute, it's the 1750s in Massachusetts, and women certainly aren't, aren't allowed to go to Harvard, yeah. uh, the only college in the, in the province, but they are really are not allowed to go to anything that would uh, make equivalent to our modern high schools. Um, but here's what she did. A, she's self-educated in the same way that we think of Ben Franklin being, but then B, and this was fascinating to me, to see her writing all these letters. She's one of the few people from that era that we have their youthful letters, not mm-hmm. all of them, but a bunch of them. And she'll write letters to her friend where they argue about a Shakespeare play or a Moliere play. Uh, that she was very into French literature as mm. a young person. Um, or discuss Islam, um, uh, which comes up in, in at least one of her early letters. And, and she'll be writing this letter uh, to a cousin. And when I've read these for the first time, I go, oh, well, this cousin must be quite a long ways off. That's why she's writing a letter. But often that cousin that she was writing these letters to 
was like next door. <laughs> and that's what these women are doing is they are experimenting with these ideas, yeah. experimenting with how to write about them in letters. So it wouldn't be correct to describe her as entirely self-educated because it's um, – uh, I use the term social education on the analogy of social medicine, where the, the sort of the, the local society has its own medicine. Yeah. Uh, these women are educating each other. Young women are educating each other. So uh, at what point does she uh, sort of enter society, uh, start encountering men, dating? Where, where does John come in? Well, the first thing to say about John is that her parents did not want her to marry him. Okay. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't anything about him. Well, the records don't give a clear indication of anything about him in particular. Um, if you see the HBO movie, John Adams, he was not a, a person who lacked confidence. Right. And I think that probably is an accurate portrayal in the movie. Uh, and so there may have been some tension there. But the bigger issue was that... Um, like a lot of young people today, he yeah okay he'd gone to college, but he wasn't sure what to do next. And he went out to Worcester, Massachusetts, and taught school. And then okay maybe maybe I'll read for the law, which takes a while, and learn how to be a lawyer. He just hadn't really gotten started in life. So her parents said, uh, "It's too soon. Wait, let's you know let's throw this fish back in the water and see if it gets bigger." Um, and so there was a long delay, uh, a, a two-year courtship when the, she and John are ready to get married. How old are they? Um, let's see. They, got, they did finally get married in 64 when she was, it was the year that she turned 20. So we're talking about 18 to 20. Mm -hmm. uh, it was not uncommon for women to marry, well, in Virginia at, you know, age 13 sometimes. Right. But in Massachusetts, uh, certainly 18 uh, would, would have been a, a fine time to get married. Sure. Um, so they have this long delay, but it's great for us because it produces this amazing correspondence between them. And the word that they often used, I think he used it against her first, but she fired it back at him and all the time too, is saucy. Hmm. Um, and they really, it was a, it was. Some of the letters were very sweet and romantic in our sort of modern rom-com uh, sense of romantic correspondence, but a lot of it was sparring. Um, and I think that's one of the things he really admired about her was that she would stand up to him and not be intimidated by, here's a, you know I've, I've I've not been to college I've not been to high school and this guy's been to Harvard and is a lawyer that um, that didn't do anything for her I mean yeah. she 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 respected his intelligence but she had a real it's, it's, his self confidence was obvious and often obnoxious but but one of the things we forget is how amazingly a bit quietly she was self-confident too yeah okay so so they they they're a good match they they have a, a, a relationship that I think clearly is unlike any other from the period that I could think of in, in the terms of uh, that you just described this the saucy intellectual uh, repartee uh, but and why you're saying to talk about that Kevin let me yeah. just say real quickly for your listeners Believe me or don't believe me, but Google Adam's Electronic Archive, okay. and you can read 2,000 letters that they wrote uh, back and forth to each other. Wow. Um, and I think most people would find them quite readable and just a lot of fun Yeah, fun to read. Sorry. Oh, that's great. So um, obviously we're, we're coming into um, a, a, a tumultuous decade in the 1770s. Uh, what, what, what's, what are their lives like as we move towards revolution? They don't know what's coming. They don't know that war is going to break out in April of 75, but what are their lives like over the next several years? Well, raising um, a, a bunch of kids and losing 
uh, a, a couple of those mm-hmm. kids. Um, I think one thing we forget about the I'm writing a book about the revolution now, and one thing I try to remind myself as I remind my readers is the revolution wasn't necessarily the biggest thing in everybody's life. Hmm. Um, for one thing, these were primarily a really religious people, so that's number one, and uh, or high up on the list at least. And then uh, you're having this is a point where women are having maybe six to nine kids, but four to six of those are going to live. Uh, and so almost everybody, well, Martha Washington, for instance, as you know, buried all four uh, mm-hmm. of her children. Uh, and uh, Abigail Adams was luckier than that, but uh, she did lose uh, a couple of kids, one at birth, one at a year and a half, and, and, um, uh, and so forth. So, so they're going through that family kind of stuff. Um, and, and then the real, I think, the beginning of her independent story, and this is partly because this is when we had the letters again, you know, we have letters that they wrote when they were courting, but then when they're living together, there's a big silence. Mm-hmm. We have to find, read about it from what they, the two of them said to others. But uh, 1774, he goes off to the First Continental Congress, mm-hmm. and that's when we start to see them uh, coordinating, I mean, coordinating with each other and... Uh, her taking over the family business, uh, first while he's in Congress and then while he's in Europe uh, as a diplomat. Um, and I think the, the, maybe one of the most pivotal moments is a letter that many of your listeners have heard of, and that is it's March of 1776. George Washington has just driven the British out of Boston. And it's March in Massachusetts. It's finally you're finally starting to see a couple little blades uh, <laughs> creep up through the frozen ground, and she's writing John on March 31st of 1776. You know, I, I want to hear that you've declared independence. Spring is in the air in every sense of that phrase, mm. and that's when she writes John saying, "Okay, I know you are going to declare independence when you do." Remember the ladies. Remember the ladies. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Okay, so this is a great passage. Uh, she's writing to John. She wants uh, him to, uh, I, I mean, I'll, I'll just paraphrase a couple of things that jump out to me in my memory, uh, uh, that uh, men can be tyrants, men are tyrants if they're allowed to be. We need to find ways to remember the ladies as, as, as we have this new world in front of us, this new opportunity that comes with independence. Talk Absolutely. to me about this letter. Well, that phrase that you uh, paraphrased accurately, all, all men would be tyrants if they could, that was one of her strategies because uh-huh. that was a line, almost a direct quote from John Adams. Uh-huh. Um, that, of course, when he means men, he means it sort of in the same way of all men are created equal or it's ambivalent. Do we mean men? Do we mean all humans? But uh, she was using his own words uh, against him yeah. uh, in, in saying that. And, she, and there are several other examples of that in this letter. Uh, one of her big strategies in the letter, which she had used before in their courtship correspondence, when she wanted to say something bold, she did something that you probably do when you want to say something bold, is you kind of do it as a joke mm. to put a little bit of sugar uh, around the pill. So the, the, so one of her jokes was uh, that if you don't remember the ladies, then I'm going to lead the women uh, in rebellion. Uh. And, uh, you know, some historians, I think, Without a sense of humor, have thought that she was it was a serious threat, uh, and it wasn't. Um, but the matters were serious. Uh, it's important to remember, as others have pointed out, that as of 1776, um, her brother uh, um, had really succumbed already to alcoholism. He was still alive, but 
Um, he had ruined his family. Uh, he had a wife and kids, but had made life miserable for them. And there were some suggestions that he had been tyrannical to his wife, that is, had be, uh, abused her in some way. Okay. Not, not, it's very hard to tease the stuff out of the records because people are embarrassed to talk about it. But I'm persuaded by the historians that say that that's really what Abigail was after in the Remember Those Ladies letter. She did not, in that letter, ask for the right to vote. She never asked mm. for the right to vote. Um, she, uh, I would call her a proto-feminist, but she had her limits, and that was just beyond what anybody would consider. What she really wanted was, she said, look, some men are great. And, of course, the implication to John is, prove to me that you're one of them. Mm. So most men are great, but some are not. And so that's why we need to put it out of the power of the tyrannical men to to treat their to mistreat their wives. Mm-hmm. I think that's really what she was after, which makes it all the sadder that John responded. And again, they did have a joking relationship, so take this as you will. And I urge people to read his response uh, for themselves online. But his response was, "I cannot but laugh." Right. And uh, you know, Cokie Roberts, who's written about Abigail Adams, says she must have wanted to kill him uh, <laughs> when he wrote that uh, because you know this was a pretty serious matter. And she did. She wrote her friend Mercy Warren saying how mad she was that John didn't take it seriously. But it was the beginning of an ongoing conversation that she had with him. And one of the things I discovered researching my book was that she had it with a lot of other people too. Her daughter, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of her uh, female, uh, a lot of her uh, nieces, and with some other men too about the status of of women uh, and and men. So it was a it was a campaign that she kept pushing. Um, but but by 1782 or so, when the war was won after Yorktown, the war is winding down. There's a great state letter that she wrote John in June of 1782 um, that's also about women's rights but it's painful to read mm. because it's wistful it doesn't have that hope of the remember the ladies letter in March of 1776 but by June of 1782 it's clear that the men have won the revolutionary war but that the women haven't and that the women have not been remembered and they're not going to get um, anything out of it and one of the one of the the, the, the limitations that uh, one of the when people talk about the the revolutionary nature of the revolution and they talk about the ways in which it wasn't as revolutionary as it could have been, they'll point to uh, to the status of women, the legal status of women that that say married women can't own property, that they can't ha- have a political or legal identity separate from their husbands. Um, that's that seems to be one of the things that the revolution never could accomplish. Right. Yes. And the status of women. Now, look, you know, as as the as the wives of men who don't have to pay taxes to Britain and all those other things, they gain in that way. But as women, mm-hmm. I think the the most accurate answer to what women as women got out of the revolution is nothing. So all these things, the coverture where the wife is covered by her husband. So you could be Martha Washington, the richest widow in Virginia. You marry. George, I'm sorry, Martha Custis, you marry George Washington and become Martha Washington. That day, you own nothing. Yeah. Um, that, we think of that as this one of those horrible things that happened during the colonial era, and that's what it was, but it also happened well into uh, the 19th century. Mm-hmm. I think what you can give the revolution credit for, it's sort of a positive version of a time bomb. You, you say things like all men are created equal, and even if you use the word men, it's out there. And, yeah. you know, the year 1776 wasn't out before Lemuel Haynes, uh, a black soldier in the Continental Army, says, 
hmm, let's talk about this all men are created equal. Yeah. And first abolitionists started pushing the universalizing of that phrase. And then it, it, women's rights started doing it in 1848. It culminates in, um, in the, the, the Seneca Falls Declaration, which is just patterned directly on the, on the, on the Declaration of Independence. So it's, that is the long-term impact. Yeah. But Abigail Adams, like you and me, she lived in the short term. Yeah. And so what it was about in 1782 when, uh, when she realized that women weren't going to make these substantial gains, that she made an amazing decision. And that was the law says I can't own property. I'm going to do it anyway. And out of all this great fortune that she amassed for her husband through bond speculation, real estate speculation, through uh, wartime trade, she started taking some of that property and setting it aside. And she referred to it, uh, I'll quote her, money which I call mine. Money which I call mine. A fascinating phrase because she knew it wasn't, in the eyes of the law, it wasn't hers. Yeah. Um, but uh, she'd made all this money, and she started setting it aside. Sometimes she called it her pocket money or her pen money, um, and she used it mostly to keep her family together. Uh, uh, I've mentioned her alcoholic brother. I think there was an alcohol gene in the Smith family, her, her natal family, and so a couple of her sons had problems with alcohol, and so she sort of helped them. Tom, why Thomas, why don't you move back? to Braintree where I can keep an eye on you and I'll, uh, I can set you up with a house. She'd had one of her father's slaves was freed in 1783, um, but by then was old, having given the best years of her life to her to the Smith family that owned her. And so she took care of Phoebe. Um, and that was part of her family too. She once referred to Phoebe as the only surviving parent I have. An amazing comment that is. Uh, about a person who her father had owned. Um, and she built up this uh, property of her own. Getting into the 19th century, she bought bank stock and canal stock. Um, and by the time she wrote her will in 1816, she amassed a fortune of more than $5,000, which may not sound like a lot, but multiply it times 20 to get it into a, a modern currency. And... Um, she wrote this will, and I remember I, I researched this book chronologically. You know, just read the letters in order. Okay. Did a few other things, but that's the main thing I did. And I got to the will, and I'm reading it, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. There's something wrong with this picture. What's wrong with Abigail Adams' will? What's wrong with it is that her husband's alive in 1816 when she wrote her will. She would die in 1818. He wouldn't die until, as you, famous, as you know famously, died on July 4th, 1826, as did uh, Thomas Jefferson. Um, so here she is in 1816, a married woman writing a will. She's not supposed to do that. Yeah. Because the, in the eyes of the law, what's a will do? A will distributes property. In the eyes of the law, a married woman doesn't own property. But again, she's been doing it all this time, and she does it anyway. And she, uh, as of 1816, when she wrote this will, she had... Um, a bunch of nephews and, and uh, grandchildren or grandsons and so forth who were in pretty dire financial straits where they really needed the money. Mm-hmm. And she left them nothing. Wow. She left it all to her granddaughters and her nieces and her daughters-in-law uh, and her female servants, who, many of whom were themselves married to guys. Yeah. So they didn't have any more right to receive this property than she had to give it to them. And I think that was kind of her point. 
was having spent the last 30 years declaring ownership of property in defiance of centuries of English common law still prevailing in America after independence. Having done that herself, she was now giving these other women an opportunity to make the same incredibly bold claim. That's amazing. So let me ask, let me ask the million-dollar question. Is she the tip of the iceberg? Are women in early America just doing this, or is she truly exceptional? What's your sense of things? I think it's a great question that I don't have a solid answer to. Um, it, it is very possible that—I mean, I do think she's exceptional, but I th- it's quite possible that if we had 2,000 letters— that um, uh, other women wrote, we mm-hmm. would see similar statements from other yeah. women. Yeah. You think of um, of um, Judith Sargent Murray. We have even more letters of hers, and of course, she was uh, even much more of a feminist than than Abigail Adams was. So the so when you get a lot of letters, you get a lot of talk about the injustice that men have. And Murray left her copyright to to someone, right? Didn't she sort of leave the the right to a book? Uh, she at least wrote it out that she was sort of leaving the copyright to one of her books of poems. I, I, I vaguely remember this. I do not remember that. Who okay. did she leave it to? Somebody. Well, I, I don't. I, 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 I'm the one asking the questions, but I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I, but I do know that there's uh, that Judith Sargent Murray did have uh, a similar. She flirted with something similar to what you're describing in, in Abigail's will. Oh, I see. She left property. Oh, oh, wow. Her, oh, you're giving me a homework assignment. I, 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 I can, uh, and it sounds like everyone else will also have to go with this up for themselves because yeah. I don't know the answer. Yeah. But she left it to somebody. But let's talk. Let's go back to Abigail. Um, we have um, someone who's who's investing in in bonds. Uh, and uh, profiting from it. It's a huge part of the family's fi- finances. I, I want to get her into the president's mansion. Clearly, we don't have um, uh, a, a White House to speak of uh, because uh, John Adams is coming in in Philadelphia. As, as First Lady, how, how, how do you characterize Abigail Adams? What, what, what was her experience of being the wife of the president? Let me say, by the way, that she did have a brief period of being the president's wife in Washington, D.C. Oh, that's right. Um, because, uh, you know, Jefferson didn't take over until March of 1801, and so they had a very brief... A couple of months in the White House. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's, let's focus on the other, other years. Uh, what was her experience like as First Lady? Um, okay, so the, the HBO movie John Adams is wonderful in many ways. I think Paul Giamatti was perfect to play John Adams in that uh, John Adams could, it's clear from his letters that he could get very passionate about things. And you see Paul, Paul Giamatti has, has this way of making his eyes protrude out of his face like a cartoon character. And I thought that <laughs> conveyed that. But the problem with that movie and with, I think, a lot of the portrayals of Abigail Adams is that she's the one soothing the passionate warrior. Okay, come on back and let me give you a back back massage to yeah. rub your shoulders to kind of calm you down. And the Abigail Adams that I saw, especially while he was president, but even before that, was the exact opposite of that. That is much more passionate even than John was. And 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 I should say, for instance, um, John Adams, at some point in his career, hated just about anybody you can name from that era. John Hancock, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, of course. Uh, not quite George Washington. Nobody's allowed to hate George Washington uh, in that crowd, uh, but certainly Alexander Hamilton. But everybody that John hated, Abigail hated more. And, uh, and so this comes in as an answer to your question because I, it's not correct. And I, you know, I'd love to be able to portray her as John's uh, advisor on, uh, as president, and you don't see a lot of that. Um, and, and there are a lot of letters because they're not always living in the same 
city, she'll often go off to Massachusetts on her own and so forth. So we have letters, and she will comment on things. One area where she did advise him, however, was one of the most important, and that is the war with France. Hmm. People forget that um, exactly 20 years after the United States made an alliance with, with France in which we swore to defend each other, and of course that alliance was absolutely crucial to the American victory at Yorktown and generally in the Revolutionary War. That was 1778 that they made that alliance. In 1798, uh, 20 years later, the United States and France were at war, um, at sea. Uh, it, it didn't become a land war. You know, they brought Washington out of retirement to train the soldiers, officially at least. Hamilton yeah. really did it and others. But, um, uh, and, and John Adams did sign off. There's some question about how enthusiastic he was about the about the war preparation and the Alien and Sedition Acts. But the point is that Abigail Adams was she hated uh, France by that point. She'd had a great time in France. She'd been a little freaked out by some of the French women's morals, for instance, but but she, she'd had a pretty good time in France, but um, once the French were insulting her husband, things like the XYZ affair in 1798, she was a passion, she passionately pulled him in the direction of, of going to war. And I think if she had been president, we would have gone and gone into a formally declared war against France, and they might not have wow. worked it out as they did in 1800. So that's the one case where we really see her influencing um, his politics. Um, I'll tell you, from, from that period, the most inspiring uh, moment um, in, uh, in Abigail's life, I'd say, uh, or one of, one of the, in, in, in that period, um, she had a, uh, a servant who was African-American, uh, this is in Massachusetts, and they'd finally abolished slavery in 1783. Um, but she had a servant who she sent to the local school, and the white parents at the school uh, agreed among themselves to withdraw their kids from the school until the school expelled this one black kid. Um, and um, he came and reported that to her, and she really went to bat for him, quoting the the, the golden rule. Unfortunately, she doesn't say the letter. What eventually happened? Whether the kid was let back into school, and I haven't found records. Oh wow! Uh, so we don't know what eventually happened, but um, but she's continuing her her local battles. I should say, by the way, having mentioned that she was against slavery early on, she took care of this woman who had who had given up her life to enslavement for the Smith family. There's another side of her on race relations um, that's not pretty. Uh, when she was in um, London in 1785, she saw the Shakespeare play uh, Othello. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of us read Othello. You know more Shakespeare experts than I do, but most of us read Othello as an anti-racist play. You know, the, the black guy is the good guy. Yeah, he gets pressured by Iago or whatever, but... That's not how she saw it at all. And she said, um, just watching the sooty, as she called him, the sooty, and, and he may have literally been sooty because it was probably a white guy with yeah. burnt uh, cork on him to try to make him look black. Uh, she said, watching the sooty uh, Othello touch the fair Desdemona filled me with disgust. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the fascinating things about it. It's very sad and tragic to read her saying that, but that's the same person who in 1797 is going to go to bat for this black kid who got thrown out. She looks like Thurgood Marshall uh, in that case. And and that was one of the fun things for me. I have some hints in the book about why I think the context mattered about where she would go, but she was capable. She She had a lot of range. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you could talk to me as we come towards a close here about 
Um, of course, her husband famously loses in the election in 1800, uh, and and the Federalist Party over the the rest of her lifetime is on the wane. Uh, talk to me about the the last uh, uh, couple of decades of her life, or, or close to that, uh, and and how she saw the direction of of the nation. What what, did, what what were Abigail's thoughts about the future of America? Um, well, she was an arch Federalist till the day she died, mm-hmm. and you know John Adams and Thomas Jefferson famously reconciled, and it's you can read online the beautiful letters they wrote back and forth, and they were they knew they were writing not just to each other but to history, and so they were right. still kind of having those arguments, but but um, but it was sort of a nice grumpy old men correspondence between the two of them, and so John. Adams and Thomas Jefferson reconciled, but Abigail Adams and Thomas Jefferson never did. Hmm. She she could keep a grudge, um, and uh, I think she remained committed to her Federalist beliefs. She sort of um, morphed gently in uh, out of the old congregational faith that she had been raised in. I remember I mentioned their father was a preacher uh, into becoming a Unitarian, um, which was consistent with her Federalism. Uh, as well, but like John, she was a really parochial New Englander, and that was part of being a Federalist uh, uh, for them. I would love to be able to tell you that she passed her feminism on to her daughter, Nabby, but for one thing, she buried her daughter, Nabby, who um, uh, got breast cancer um, and, um, and, and actually suffered through something that is impossible for us to imagine, which was a mastectomy while conscious. They gave her a little bit of opium, but uh, Abigail was present for that. And so um, we don't have a ton of comments about her um, her thoughts about... The, the, you're asking a great question, but it's not something that she wrote about because yeah. she was more focused on her family uh, at that time, and, and she, had, she buried... Um, Charles, her son, um, who suffered from alcoholism in, uh, in 1800, and then her daughter, Nabby, I think in 1812. Um, and so, so yeah, the family kind of kept her busy. But then she, had, she did have nieces and, um, that she would write a little bit about. Um, she, she was somewhat optimistic. I remember her saying to one niece, you know, at least you can get a, a, bigger edu- a better education than I could. You still can't, get, oh. can't go to Harvard. Uh, like your brothers can, but you can do a little better than I can, um, did. Uh, uh, one of the sad things about her, you know, her um, her son John Quincy Adams brought out a bunch of her letters after her death, and John's death too. He brought out a bunch of letters between Abigail and John, but none of her feminist letters. Not remember the ladies, oh, wow. or any of that stuff. It was all the more family stuff. So uh, I talked about the Declaration of Independence as sort of a positive time bomb. It was ticking, but it was. It was way underground, and, and um, the legacy that she left was that will of, of, of just quietly saying, okay, we're not going to change the law, but we can just quietly, on the, in this household, we can defy it. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity to learn a little bit more about Abigail Adams. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.